Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Activist Lawyer, recorded here in the Granite Podcast Studios in Newry. And I'm very happy to be in our studio today um, with Saoirse Brady, who is the Executive Director at the Irish Penal Reform Trust. Hi Saoirse. Hi Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You didn't have too far to come. I know you live in Dublin, but you're... And you're a Nuri woman. Nuri born and bred, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So it's great to have you here in person. And um, I've been following a lot of your work for quite some time now. So um, it's finally great to catch up with you and uh, to find out where you're at. So for our listeners, just a brief introduction. Searsha joined the Children's Rights Alliance as Head of Legal Policy and Public Affairs in 2016, having previously worked with the Alliance as Research and Projects Manager between 2013 and 2015. Since 2004, she worked in a number of leading rights organisations, including FLAC, the Free Legal Advice Centre, and Frontline Defenders. She previously worked as a paralegal with the Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse, also known as the Ryan Commission, and as an independent consultant for the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, CORU, the Scottish Human Rights Commission, and she also studied law at UCD, and the University of Padova, with a quick chat about that, your Erasmus year, uh, just the year before me, and holds a master's degree in European studies from the Dublin European Institute. In 2014, Saoirse completed a professional fellowship sponsored by the US State Department and Boston College with a particular focus on juvenile justice. She is the former chair of the board of Equate, a founding member of Peace Brigades International Ireland, and the Yes Equality Coordinator in Dublin North West. Well, congratulations on all of that. Um, and on your new role as Executive Director at the IPRT, which is what we're going to discuss a little bit about today. Yes. But before we get to that, you might start by just telling our listeners and myself a little bit about your career journey, what led you down the path of working in human rights and um, after studying law, and you start where you like. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose. And, you know, I, I suppose you've heard this from previous guests that, you know, growing up, you always kind of had a sense of wanting to, to help and see an injustice and wanting to do something about it. And I suppose I grew up in a household where my dad, who many of the listeners will know, was Mickey Brady, who you founded the first w- Welfare Rights Centre in Uri the year I was born, actually three months after I was wow, born. Right. So I'd say he was sleep deprived at the time. My goodness, fair play to Mickey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, so I suppose I always grew up hearing about discrimination, yes. people trying to access their rights um, trying to access what they were entitled to, being denied those rights and, you know, him being able to do something about that. And even, you know, when we were very young, we would have been going into the office after school sometimes. And Listening to social yeah. welfare. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's funny because I never thought I'd end up in social welfare, but I did yeah. in FLAC. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, it's quite ironic, but... Um, I suppose um, when I was deciding on what to study, Mm -hmm. law seemed the logical choice Mm -hmm. then. Kind of always knew I wouldn't practice. But, you know, didn't rule it it out completely, but kind of thought, is that what I want to do? But I know that that involves human rights and, Mm -hmm. you know, access to justice and it might lead me somewhere else. So I did that. And my dad was part of the reason, I suppose, just kind of growing up with that piece around trying to um, help others and you know, um, fight injustice in some way. Sure. But also my uncle Jim, his brother, would have um, been a professor of law in UCD. Ah. And uh, Jim would al- al- also have been my godfather. So, you know, I suppose that had a bit of an influence. So unfortunately, my uncle Jim passed away the year before I started college. But actually, when I got my L-level results and my choice, uh, I, 
I got my offers from universities. I'd applied to Queen's and I'd applied to UCD as well as other universities mm-hmm. in Scotland. But those were my two kind of top choices. And I was lucky enough to get both. And I remember crying about it because I didn't know which to do. I didn't know <laughs> where to go. And, you know, like this is the year after the Good Friday Agreement was signed. Yeah. So I suppose that played a little, well, I say a little part in my decision, but actually probably played a big enough part. Mm-hmm. You know, all my friends are going to Belfast. I liked Belfast. But I also thought like any time I'd gone to Belfast when I was younger, you know, couldn't really say my name out too loudly yeah. just in case. And I didn't really want to go to university and, you know, have to hide part of myself or not be who I am. University is all about it. finding yourself, exploring mm-hmm. opportunities. So that was part of the rationale. But also I love Dublin. Mm-hmm. Like I love live music. It was a great place to go. Absolutely. Um, and then my aunt was still there. So obviously I went and stayed with her for the first year. It was it was brilliant. <laughs> I was so spoiled. Um, <laughs> Sounds ideal. Yeah. So I went down there and I studied law in UCD. And, you know, again, like going from Newry to UCD, you were meeting people who, you know, just expected that you knew the names of all the private schools, then you that you'd know who their parents or grandparents were. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a clue. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I ended up finding my own kind of, you know, group mm-hmm. of friends who I'm still friends with to this day, a couple yeah. of decades on. So th- that's great. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed studying parts of law. Not mm-hmm. all of it. I have to say company law was not for me. Mm. Um, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I learned a lot. And mm. then um, afterwards, I, I did do a master's in European studies. And that was kind of, I suppose, I had a love of languages. I wanted to do something mm-hmm. with that. And also kind of the wider political piece and not just law. So yes. did that. Um and then when I graduated, of course, you're applying everywhere and you're trying to get your foot in the door. You're trying to get internships. It's really difficult. And mm-hmm. I remember getting a call from a recruiter one day. They said, look, there's a, we've got your CV and there's a job opening coming up. Now, look, we're just warning you before we tell you what it is that it wouldn't be for everyone. And that's fine. But, you know, um, you might be interested in it. And I said, well, what is it? And they said, it's the Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse. Uh, mm-hmm to become a paralegal with them and I thought no I'm definitely interested Um, it's something you know I think obviously very harrowing but Mm -hmm. I can do some good and um, yeah so I went into the commission it was really interesting of course as a paralegal you're doing the the photocopying the Mm. you know going through umpteen hundreds thousands of pages looking for names but actually it was so this is how long ago it was it was you know when some of the kind of software where you could scan documents in and do it online had just come on board so we were (laughs) like the first people in the state using it um and we did that and that's how we started off but then as it progressed we actually got to meet with some of the Mm -hmm. people um, so we got to sit in and that kind of came about because obviously there were barristers doing those interviews, but then they were investigating the deaf schools. So actually they had to, the barristers couldn't be looking down and taking notes at the same time in case somebody was lip reading right. and also for the interpreters. So they started bringing the paralegals in to those. Um, what was really interesting before that, you know, you would have been meeting with people who were saying they're. 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s even. Mm -hmm. But when they were talking about what happened to them, the abuse that suffered at the hands of the religious orders in the industrial schools, you could see them regress to being that angry, lonely, Mm -hmm. scared child. And uh, that was really powerful. But what really struck me was with the deaf schools, I remember sitting in one interview and there was a girl that was only a couple of years older than me. So this wasn't 
yeah. past history. This was very recent. Mm-hmm. So I worked there for a couple of years um, and then I got the opportunity to uh, take up an internship with Frontline Defenders. And part of that internship you spent in Dublin working in the, the main office, but part of it you went to the office for the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Oh, brilliant. And worked with the Human Rights Defenders mandate, because Frontline's all about human rights defenders. And those are people who place themselves in danger, put their lives at risk for particular human rights that they believe in mm-hmm. and work on. So, you know, it could be anyone from, you know, a trade unionist, a journalist, to a land activist mm-hmm. or you know it could, like really the any kind of right that you can think of they do that sure. so you actually got to meet with some of those people are so inspiring now again that, <laughs> that wasn't the easiest job because you know you were trying to get governments to act or take action to mm-hmm. protect these people and very often sometimes it's a government that's behind some of the atrocities um and then you were you know sometimes unsuccessful and you had to deal with that because these people ended up dead or mm-hmm. severely injured or having to flee their country. So, you know, that was really interesting work. Um, and I'm still in touch with Frontline to this day. You know, I still mm-hmm. consider myself part of the Frontline family. Um, <laughs> still invited to the Christmas drinks. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so um, then from that, you know, I, I was really interested in going into kind of the international field, was looking mm-hmm. at that, trying to, to make my way in there, applying for jobs back in yeah. Geneva after I came back um, and had interviews in that. But in the meantime... You know, I just didn't have prob- probably just enough experience yeah. for them. So this job came up with free legal advice centres and, you know, people were encouraging me to go for it. And I applied for it and uh, I was interviewed by Nolene Blackwell, oh. who I'm sure many of your listeners yes. know, um, who was Director General of FLAC at the time, but is now Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. And, you know, we went through it and they were very intrigued by the fact that my father worked in welfare rights as well. Yeah. And they were kind of laughing about that. I was like, I can't believe I'm even interviewing for a job in social <laughs> welfare law. Um, and I didn't really know a lot about it at the time. <laughs> Certainly not about social welfare law in the South. Because uh, yeah. it was based in Dublin, obviously. And then um, I ended up uh, getting the job. And mm-hmm. I remember it was a three-year contract. And Nolene would probably still slag me to this day. But... You know, I said, oh, I don't know if I can commit for three years, you know. And she was like, well, you know, it's a contract. You, there's a notice period. You don't yeah, have yeah. to sign up for three. Well, you sign the contract, but you can leave before three years. And I said, oh, no, it's just I don't want to let you down. You know, mm. it was in my early 20s, quite yeah. naive. And uh, she said, oh, no, well, look, um, look, we'll make it 18 months then. And of course, I was there for six six and a half years you, you weren't know. Were there that long yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness but um I suppose there I really that's Mickey Brady's yeah. influence on you. <laughs> like there I got to do lots but like I suppose some of the main focuses of my work which I'm sure again we'll touch on later was kind of um writing reports mm. and I wrote two reports I'm really proud of one was on uh the human rights aspects of the direct provision system for asylum seekers and the other one was around social welfare appeals mm-hmm. which sounds very dry but is actually really important for yes. people um and you know so i learned a lot of flack and then got to interact with some of the international mechanisms that kept my interest as well and then after that i moved on to the children's rights alliance um and i was there i started there in 2013 and i was there for a couple of years because Initially, it was to cover a maternity leave, um, but then I ended up staying on a bit longer and really enjoyed my time there, uh, working on the children and family relationships legislation, things like that. And also, as part of that role, I was um, 
kind of help and flack in the end, uh, coordinate the civil society report under the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Okay. So again, kind of bringing a lot All of my right. interests and um, expertise together. So that yeah. was really interesting. And then after that, I went on to do the same for the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission because they had actually advertised for a consultant and my contract was coming to an end. And I thought it'd be really interesting to do that from both sides, yeah. you know, the civil society, pure civil society, and then from the national human rights mm-hmm. institution point of view. So that was great and actually got to go to Geneva and, and see that in progress as well. Um, and then I did some consultancy for a while, also did it for um, community law mediation down in Dublin, did a piece for mm-hmm. them, as well as the Scottish Human Rights Commission. That was really, you know, different. Mm-hmm. Learned a lot from that because like, you look to Scotland a lot, a lot now for things that yeah, they're doing. Absolutely. Um, that are much more progressive. progressive. Yeah, yeah, so did that. Um, and then ended up back at the Children's Rights Alliance. Uh, the job opening came up as kind of the head of legal and policy there. Um, and I went for it and got it and was delighted to go back because yeah. it's a great team, great yeah. people to work with. Um, and Tanya Ward is obviously the uh, yeah. chief executive there. So I was there for six years um, again. Six <laughs> uh, is your life. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. Um, my colleagues in IPRT will be listening out for that, I'm sure. Uh, but... Yeah, so this job came up in the IPRT and I wasn't necessarily looking for a job, but sure. it's such a great organisation yeah. and I thought, I've done work with them mm. over the past few years, it looks great, you know what, I'll, I'll give it a go and do the interview at least and see what happens yeah. and then was delighted to get the job. Uh, mm. Again, a really difficult decision to mm-hmm. leave behind a team that I loved, to leave behind work that I loved, mm-hmm. um, although... I always remind myself, IPRT is a member of the Children's Rights Alliance, so well, they'll be go. hearing so a lot too. more yeah. from me now. Yeah, um, there's great alliance yeah. among the mm. organisations. Well, I'm, Saoirse, I'm totally in awe <laughs> of your background. And you've mentioned a few people there who I, I am familiar with just having worked in Dublin. But I will say, and it's been a long time since I've been there, there is a great community, isn't there, among the different alliances, the NGOs, yep. Um, even some of the law firms as well that really play into that work a lot. Um, all of those organisations you mentioned there, um, some of the community law centres as well. Mm-hmm. What would we do without them? Like well, they really fill in such a massive gap. And I know with Nolene Black, um, Nolene Blackwell. Sorry, I mm-hmm. just take that again. I I know with Flack as well, they do a lot of the legal clinics, and mm-hmm. I used to be there in the one in O'Connell Street every two weeks and we'd be inundated with people and any of the practitioners and the volunteers there were the same you know so they really play a huge part in in all kind of aspects of this type of public law work and pushing matters forward so I mean I think it's brave of you as well to you know um, try different roles as well and go back to the organizations that you once worked as because some of those moves that you made are quite quite brave and you know you really kind of um, took took a risk in doing that which is great for listeners who perhaps like you are not sure whether they want to practice law mm-hmm. essentially but look at the experience and you know the connections that you've made and you know the good work that you've done through having studied law and then getting into those fantastic organisations that you mentioned in Dublin so a big influence obviously your family in particular your father um, and then your environment as well as you say at the time I mean it was just emerging out of the, the Good Friday mm-hmm. Agreement um, and you're from Newry and living in Dublin. 
How do you feel about, I mean, is there a kind of cross-border element to some of your work in the past or your current work at the moment? How do partnerships work between the two jurisdictions? Yeah, I suppose, like, back when I was in FLAC, um, you know, so that would have been from 2007 to 2013, we would have done quite a lot of work with uh, Law Centre in Northern Ireland and others up there around mm-hmm. social security, social welfare, and just trying to exchange learning and information. The community law centres would have had a network and we would have come together. But since Brexit, you know, mm-hmm. nobody likes mentioning that word. But since that, I suppose, I think the cross-border work has become even more crucial and vital. Um, and, you know, when I was in the Children's Rights Alliance at the time, no Brexit. I, th- I think nobody really foresaw what was going to happen, and we're nobody still, have, no. you know, in in the midst mm-hmm. of that. But I suppose one of the things that happened then was we were kind of, you know, coming together as lawyers, as um, human rights organisations, both north and south, and saying, right, okay, I don't think the north is really being considered here, mm-hmm. and what the Good Friday Agreement means, yeah. and it could be torn apart if we don't do something about this. So, you know, you had people like Martin O'Brien from Social Change Initiative up in, in Belfast really um, pushing this. Michael Farrell, who is a former colleague from FLAC as well, and mm-hmm. renowned civil rights lawyer um, and activist, you know, they were all coming together, and then mm-hmm. they were involved in the organisations like the Children's Rights Alliance and ICCL and CAJ up in, in Belfast and the Children's Law Centre. And we were all coming together to see how we could actually put this on the agenda. And I think groups did very successfully do that. That's yeah. why we ended up with a protocol at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, what we found was children and young people weren't being considered at all. Um, and it was really interesting because obviously um, Enda Kenny was Taoiseach at the time, uh, Charlie Flanagan was Minister for Foreign Affairs and they put in place this all-island civic dialogue mm-hmm. and they were bringing civil society down from the north, unions and um, like all the big unions, the farmers union, but like all the kind of um, third sector civil society organisations as well and like we, I remember going to the first one and actually Tanya was off on leave at the time. She said, oh, they've asked us, you know, to attend and say a few words. But at the time I thought it was going to be, didn't realise how big it was going to be, thought it was a round table. And the day before, I think I got a call to say, oh, you're standing in for Tanya. And I said, yeah, yeah. And oh, you're happy to say a few words. I said, yep, yeah, th- that's fine. And they said, right, so it's three minutes. So when you get up on the stage, the Taoiseach will be behind you. And I was like, what? Oh. <laughs> they were like, yes, and the counter will be there. And obviously it's being televised. So like, obviously okay. it's being televised. I was like, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> but at the same time, it was a brilliant opportunity mm-hmm. because it showed the, the interest from the government in children's rights. And um, it gave us a chance to kind of say, you know, children aren't being heard in this and actually this is very much about their future yeah uh, they need to be included they need to be incorporated you know they, they don't have a vote they didn't get to vote on this no. yet the decisions are being made about them so that was really powerful um and then ended up doing a lot of cross-border work there and then with my current role actually the second week in the job um, I was up in Stormont <laughs> uh, because we're doing a cross-border project with NIACRO, which is our yes. sister organisation up in Belfast. And um, it's really to try and, you know, so the Community Foundation of Ireland and Community Foundation Northern Ireland are 
they have um, an all-island fund and they're trying to encourage this cross-border working. And I suppose what we were trying to do was look at some of the key issues that impact people in both jurisdictions. Okay. Um, and what we talked about up there was, um, and we might talk about this a bit more later, was women in prison whose children have been taken into care and what mm-hmm. that means and what issues there are there. And that was really powerful. There were like 60 people there. It was a closed session um, because there were people with experience there who wanted to talk about mm-hmm. their personal experience. Um, so we wanted to make sure that they were in a safe space. But we had like, you know, we had the head of the prison service in Northern Ireland. We had um, the governor from Docus Women's Prison in the South. You had people from probation in both. You had two to the Child and Family Agency, a really wide range of stakeholders. So it was really great. And then we're going to be doing one in November in spent convictions. And uh, as I keep saying, we have to find a really nice venue to do that in because Stormont is so fancy you know (laughs) it was like so lavish we were like okay we're really gonna have to up our game here but I suppose one of the other things that we want to come out of that is a criminal justice network Mm -hmm. and all island criminal justice network so we can share these learnings I suppose the one silver lining of Brexit is that there is more focus in this cross-border I think so Uh, just more kind of north-south coordination and as you said there's lots of alliances who have you know, strongly linked in with with each other. Even today, you know, we had uh, lots of queries and um, we're going to be speaking to um, a few kind of delegates later on from different organisations about the proposed new immigration plans Mm -hmm. that are being brought in a lot quicker than we thought. Um, But it's, I think there's a real lack of understanding, I always say this, around border living and, you know, the fact that in real reality, uh, people cross between both all the time and we interact so regularly and so many, on so many levels. So it's natural that, you know, you would be... Um, at the front of things um, during those discussions. We'll go back a little bit to kind of that, the general sector that you're working in. But just as you touched there on um, the IPRT and some of its work, um, can you just tell us a little bit about the organisation itself? Um, so far as you know, you're fresh into the job, but it seems to be, um, you know, all encompassing and doing so much. Um, how, yeah. How's it going? <laughs> Great. I've been there since the beginning of May and it feels longer, I have to say, but in a good way. Yes. Um, so... Yeah, the IPRT was established in 1994, so it's a very small organisation. It was kind of established by a group of concerned citizens who felt that people in prison um, and our penal system wasn't really reflecting the human rights standards that they should. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been going since then, and really, it's a really interesting organisation. There's only five staff, usually. We're down one staff member at the moment. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah... People can't believe that when I tell them that because of the amount of work that comes out. So I suppose we're kind of an advocacy organisation. We're not a service provider as such. But we do get queries from people in prison, from their families, um, from others working in the sector. And we do have members. So Mm -hmm. at the moment we have roughly about 115 members who are people in prison. Um, And that's really important Mm because we need to hear from them about what's going on in the ground, Um, particularly given a lot of the inspection reports aren't published or made public. And we don't always know what's going on behind closed doors or things change, Mm -hmm. you know, quite quickly sometimes Mm -hmm. depending on things like staff shortages or other things that might be going on. So it's really good to hear from those members. And of course, it's usually done through a phone call is it yeah or I was going to ask how but do you letters usually really actually. through letters we, we okay. get a lot of letters because um, interesting yeah. people in prison don't have access to sure. email so wow yeah it's all these things Something that, you that we learn, don't yeah. yeah that we take for granted absolutely um, so I suppose 
that's kind of, uh, you know, part of it. And then we would have organisational members as well. So people working in the sector who provide services, who work with people with experience of the okay. criminal justice sector. Um, and then we have a panel of solicitors as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a new legal and public affairs kind of programme of work. And that's led by um, my colleague, Molly Joyce, um, who's also our deputy director and my right-hand woman, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, so she uh, leads that, that solicitor's panel and that really tells us another story, another side to it of what's happening in the court system, what's happening for clients. Um, you know, solicitors are in the prison, so the, mm-hmm. they often know some of the things that we mightn't. So really important to have that too. Yeah, absolutely. And you just, I mean, it's there's so many issues, I guess, we could touch on when you think about it. But just um, what do you see now um, fresh into the rule, but what are the core issues that need to be addressed. I mean, that's very vague in terms of either the system itself or the reform that's needed. You touched on women in prison, which I'm particularly interested yeah. in. How, how, how do you work with um, issues affecting women and parents, I guess? Yeah, so children and families is a big focus for us. And um, women in prison is something that we've been looking at fairly recently. And we would have had a briefing in Leinster House mm-hmm. and brought some of the women with experience along. And they okay. told their stories and it was so powerful right. and hearing from them. But it really kind of brought to life what this means for people. So with women, one of the big issues is that they are very often sentenced to very short sentences. Now, it could be three months or less. Okay. Uh, It could be less than a year uh, or it could be longer. Or what very often happens is they're remanded for a time and maybe they're not, they don't end up um, serving a sentence at all. Or, you know, the sentence is so short, they go back out, they're not given the proper support and they end up back in there again. But what this means is if they're the primary carer of their child, that means the child has to go to another family member mm-hmm. or very often they're taken into care. And sometimes those care orders are eventually given up until the child is 18. So even if the woman might be serving a six-month sentence... The you care know, order's still she, in place. Then. She can't get her child back. And, you know, that, that causes so many issues. But the other thing about women in prison... One is traveller women are hugely overrepresented in, as are traveller men in the 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 men's system, but certainly traveller women. It's something like a traveller woman is eighteen to twenty two times more likely to be incarcerated than her settled counterpart, and very often for things that somebody else won't be sentenced for, that won't serve a custodial sentence for. So like road traffic offences, okay. you know, and women in general. Mm-hmm. is a generalisation, but generally. Most women that are in there are serving time for non-violent offences that could be dealt with in the community. They're much more likely to have mental health issues. There's an estimate that something like 85% of women who end up in prison have an addiction issue. Mm-hmm. So we should be focusing. And this, this goes for women and men because in the general prison population, people are four times more likely to have a, a mental health issue than somebody in the general population. We need to be focusing on who ends up in prison. Yeah. And what supports we're putting in place in the community to prevent that from happening in the first place. But also where it does happen, what supports are there to actually help them recover? Like we're hearing and we we had a stakeholder meeting yesterday and we were hearing from people who work in the prisons saying, you know, for some people it's a revolving door because Mm. they're sent to prison. Judges and, and others expect that they will get the services that they need in prison, but the waiting list for psychology services... Mm are so long that sometimes people might have served their whole sentence and never have seen, you know, a a consultant or someone that they need. 
So that's a huge issue. Addiction is a, another huge issue. And sometimes we're hearing from people, and obviously this is anecdotally, and again, what I would say is there's not enough data on yeah. any of this. Um, but, uh, and that's something that we are always calling for and always working towards um, having better data, uh, you know, looking for the evidence. But I suppose one of the things is that people with addiction, they just... They end up in there and sometimes people don't have addictions when they go in, mm-hmm. but they do when they come out, you know, and that is Gosh. that, you know, that that isn't the way it should be because there's no. a zero tolerance um, policy yeah. in prisons. Um, but, you know, the reality is something different. So we do need to think about like, you know, in the community, when you're talking about addiction, you're talking about um, helping people recover. You're helping to support them, whereas in prison, it's a no a zero t- tolerance, tolerance so policy. Yeah. So we need to update that policy because it's from 2006. We need to think about, obviously there are security issues in the prison. We're not saying that there isn't, but we need to deal with the reality on the ground mm-hmm. and ensure that people will come forward. Um, they will tell people if they have a problem, they'll tell staff, they'll trust them enough. And people do build up relationships mm-hmm. with staff. I suppose that's one thing. But yeah, that mental health addiction, women in prison, that's another thing. And then just the general conditions there have been huge improvements over the last number of years. Okay. But at the same time, what we're starting to see since um, since COVID restrictions uh, have started on Whiten is overcrowding in prisons again. We're starting okay. to see the numbers go way up again, over 4,000. Since 000. COVID, since the pandemic, well, it hasn't stopped. No, dur- during the pandemic, during we saw numbers fall mm-hmm. and now they're starting to rise and increase again since January roughly mm-hmm. of this year. So we're starting to see over 4,000 people in prison maybe a quarter of them or up to a quarter of them might be on remand. So do they need to be there Either at all? In the first place, yeah. You know? And it's quite startling as well that the rate of female prison committal seems to have ha- risen dramatically in comparison to males. The figures I was looking at here were since 2011, but as you said, you really need more data on, on this mm-hmm. to capture the reality. But I'm guessing that that remains the, the same, that women um, committal... And just in that, it's there's a concern about women who have been committed for immigration-related reasons. And perhaps, given this issue of overcrowding, as you say, there are, I'm sure, many instances where they do not need to be imprisoned for some of you know if it's an immigration related matter it could be dealt with in other ways so you're obviously looking at what happens within the system but even before people Mm -hmm. enter the system and I suppose it wouldn't make sense for your work not to include that piece Um, so how do we get more data how do you see it becoming more of an efficient way to kind of I don't know get the data and then work from that and move move things forward or is that just a massive um, kind of vague question no it isn't it isn't Um, so the Irish Prison Service they have a lot of data so they do publish Mm. um, statistics so we know how many people on a given day are in prison um, but, you know, some of the data that we would like to see is, say, around social or, um, so I was going to say social isolation, I mean, uh, isolation in prison. Mm-hmm. And basically, this might be people being put in cells either for their own protection or okay. for health reasons. So particularly mm-hmm. during COVID, this happened a lot. People were quarantined or sometimes for mental health reasons, um, you know, things like that. But, uh, you know, we don't know how long they might be uh, in isolation for. And that that's a concern. But, you know, those are the kind of numbers that the prison service Mm. probably have and could publish. But then on top of that, I don't know if you saw Queen's just published a study 
um, yesterday or the day before, this week anyway, and it was um, done in conjunction with a, a, an organisation in the north called Users Voices. Mm-hmm. And they actually um, trained prisoners to become peer researchers. Right. And then they, they actually interviewed other prisoners in England and Wales, okay. in nine prisons in England and Wales, to actually find out what the impact of COVID had been on their mental health. And just it was really fascinating because you're much more likely to speak peer on peer than you are to, mm-hmm. you know, a member of staff or an academic or mm-hmm. even someone like myself going in. You know, you're probably yeah. going to open up to them more. So, you know, I think that could be a really useful yeah. tool that we could we could look into and consider, um, especially given the, you know, we ha- probably have a much smaller prison population than they would uh, in England, Wales. Um, but I think that's one thing we could do to really try and you know, try and get some of this Mm -hmm. data, collate it. And I suppose when we're talking about the impact of COVID on mental health, like one of the big things that happened for people everywhere, and I suppose we we all felt it. Mm -hmm. We all didn't have that family contact that we usually have. But for a person in prison... It's even more isolated. It was. And we went to a... So the American Embassy held an event in Mountjoy Prison with uh, the Mountjoy Men's Choir, and we were invited along and we went to it. But one of the most emotional things in the night was watching the kids go out and hug their dads for oh. the first time in more than two years. Wow. And the men themselves were very emotional. They were kind of like, this is the first time I've been able to hug my child. There were some people, maybe not that night, but we have heard it from other people in prison who, because their their partners gave birth during COVID, they had COVID babies, so they'd never met them, you know. Yeah. And then... There were video um, calls, which actually is a good thing that yeah. came in for some We've heard people. that from other even practitioners with yeah. the, working in... And know. we would welcome those continuing, yeah. and they are continuing, but they're no substitute yeah. for the yeah. in-person visit, you know, and mm. that there needs to be a balance, there needs to be Absolutely. a bit of both. Okay, so th- lots of internal issues to look at. But just from a human rights monitoring perspective then, how is Ireland <laughs> doing in terms of its, I guess, its obligations and commitments under international law? Well, this is interesting because we've literally just been um, examined by the UN Human Rights Committee under the Civil and Political Rights Covenant. Um, so I was in Geneva a couple of weeks ago and... Um, they did obviously focus on some of the issues arising in terms of prison. So mm-hmm. one of them being ratification of the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. So I think every committee at this point has asked Ireland to ratify that. We've signed it. Right, and but not ratified it. Yeah, although it's, it's quite timely because there's a piece of legislation just being published and they are going to ratify it, what we are encouraging the government to do because... Um, OPCAT, as it's known, has a deferral mechanism of mm-hmm. three years, so you can ratify, but you know, you take up to three years to put the pieces of the puzzle in place mm-hmm. that you need to do. So we would encourage them to do that. It's not the way the Irish state works, so they like to have their ducks in a row first and right. then ratify. But I suppose that's one of the big things that came up. And then just in terms of the um, the prison conditions, the overcrowding came up in cell sanitation. There have been much improvements, but nearly half the prison population still have to use the toilet in front of somebody else. Um, oh. You know, and when you think about it, prison is about prison is about the deprivation of liberty. That yeah. is the punishment. The conditions in prison are not a punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone should be entitled to their own dignity yeah. to have their human rights respected. So this is something that I think is a common thread through all the different covenants. Okay. Um, so, yeah, wh- 
the the committee met this week to decide on the recommendations but apparently they won't be published till next week but we're all looking to see what they're going to say but I'm, sh- I'm sure yeah. it's going to be part of the problem is that the, the government does really try its best and in fairness and penal reform there's a lot happening at the moment yeah. and the programme for government did have a lot on that um, when I mentioned mental health earlier there is a mental health and addiction task force about to publish a report that will be incredibly important mm-hmm. and there is a penal policy um, options paper about to be published as well um, by the Department of Justice they've done a lot of work on it it sounds like it might be quite progressive looking at mm-hmm. community based sanctions and um, looking at alternatives to prison and trying to support people uh, post release but I suppose we're still have a fair way to go to live up to those international standards so that's part of our job to kind of keep shining that Mm. spotlight on them there's always something to work towards especially just thinking of the Istanbul convention as well going way back when in the women's um, Mm and you know the violence against women's sector but in the NGO sector in general and organizations like yours that are really working towards change is change I mean, I always felt it, it, it takes a lot of effort to make things happen. I don't know if people realise the level of involvement and effort that goes into a campaign, for example, or lobbying around a particular issue. Yeah. Um, I mean, is that just the norm or what's your experience been in, in making change effective, I suppose? It is. And it's really interesting. I suppose anyone who kind of goes into the sector mm. starts off very kind of, you know, passionate we are all still very passionate don't get me wrong but I suppose we're kind of maybe naive in a sense that oh we'll just keep campaigning change will come overnight change is incremental Mm -hmm. and actually I think the more you're in the sector and the more you're working in this space you realize actually you take the small wins when you can and Mm -hmm. those add up to the bigger wins so I'll give you a really good example of something that I've worked on for many years where I'm starting to finally see a bit of change although things um, haven't exactly gone to plan mm-hmm. but I suppose when I was in FLAC and I did that piece of work on uh, the direct provision system so that yeah. was back to we published in 2010 mm-hmm. so it was 10 years after the system came in then we um, at the time myself and Nolene were running this uh, campaign around child benefit because uh, without getting into the the nitty gritty of it um but the habitual residence condition was brought in and that impacted asylum seekers that meant that their benefits that they had been getting like the universal child benefit were cut off all Mm -hmm. of a sudden and that was really a a move to actually stop uh, inward migration from other accession eu countries like a type of hostile environment as they call it here (laughs) but actually it it had one of the greatest impacts on Mm. that cohort so we were running a campaign at the time around trying to reinstate child benefit for asylum seekers and we ran a number of social welfare um, appeals that were successful the (laughs) the government uh, so the chief appeals officer found in favor of us said you had to look at it in an individual case by case basis rather than a blanket ban a week later the government changed the law but I suppose what's really interesting is, you know, people have been calling for the abolition of direct, direct provision, provision for so general. long. Yeah. And in this uh, programme for government, we finally saw a commitment to do that. We saw a white paper white published. Paper. Yeah. What's really interesting about it is they're going to have a payment. They're not calling it child benefit. Right. But it is equivalent. They say it's equivalent to child benefit. So finally, those children and families might actually be seen as equal in that sense. Yeah. You know, to others, because those are the kind of... Um, you know, that payment goes towards like a child being able to go to a birthday party, being able to take swimming classes, do the everyday things. The parents are actually telling their child, 
they don't want to say I can't afford it, but they're saying, uh, oh, you don't want to do that. You, you wouldn't like it anyway. Or, you know, making excuses. Mm. So that is in that white paper. And while it wasn't done in last year's budget, I'm hopeful that they'll do something that in this year's budget. Yeah. But of course, I know Ukraine has happened. I now. know. And so we're seeing some regressions there as well. Yeah. Um, and there is a lot of pressure and resources. There but are. We still need to treat people equally. Yeah. I think anybody working um, in that sector around benefits, whether it's um, family welfare issues and immigration issues at the time, we're so happy to finally see some movement. I think it was Roderick O'Gorman as well had pushed forward um, that white paper. Wasn't, yeah. yeah. But again, as you say, we're all waiting with bated breath to see what comes of it small wins I know with mm-hmm. um you know some worker people were allowed to take up some level of yeah. employment and then driving licenses um a big thing hopefully that'll be pushed forward as well properly and but again we seem to have come to a little bit of a standstill yeah. but the work that has gone into that from so many organizations mm-hmm. um, and individuals yeah. lobbying for change because what was the payment without that direct provision just so people really understand what people were living off i think for at the time that i last checked it was the minimum payment for an adult was 19 it, it, so it, it was 960 and yeah. 1910 for very many years and mm-hmm. actually the children's rights alliance did some work on it then as well as others in the sector but would have pushed for it to at least be brought up to the equivalent of um the qualified child increase which is what mm-hmm. somebody gets if they have a child dependent and I they've see. got a social welfare payment and the adult payment rose as well but it was still pittance compared yeah. to what other people are so it was like something like 38 euro yeah okay you know but anyway a long time to get to that but a great achievement um for you and everybody involved just to see that level of movement so hopefully that progresses um to the yeah. next we need to see next more budget. in Absolutely. that and we need to see people being able to move into accommodation that mm-hmm. actually allows them to live with dignity and have their own door accommodation not have to worry about who they're sharing a room with mm-hmm. or you know I mean, there's so many yeah. issues there. Food being one of them. Yeah. Um, mixing religions together, mixing people together in the one accommodation. I mean, it's actually, when you look at it and you highlight it, it's actually still very, very shocking that this yeah. is something. It's a level of institutionalised abuse that we thought maybe we've moved on for. But yeah. whatever, I think, hopefully there's some level of movement there that we'd like to see. Um, But with your work, and gosh, there's so much that you've been involved in. Can you choose some area or something apart from that piece of work which is fantastic um you know that you're really proud of or that you've been a part of or that you've witnessed in Ireland having lived there and worked within the sector in general for such a long time yeah I suppose it's it's hard to kind of um you know pinpoint mm. one thing but I suppose one thing I am really proud of which was kind of an extracurricular activity was the Yes Equality campaign mm-hmm. in Dublin Northwest. so that's a constituency that's where I was living at the time um, and I remember going to a meeting just to find out a bit more about it how I could get involved and uh, Grania Healy was there who was one of yeah. the Yes Equality uh, main coordinators um, she was the chair of it and right. she kind of because I'd been involved in the children and family relationships bill at the time you know I'd been working with a lot of the LGBT organizations as well so she kind of said "Mm, we're looking for someone to take this on I'm obviously involved in the national campaign I'm too busy and she kind of looked around the room and everyone was looking at their feet and I was kind of going well and then she was like oh oh, seriously do you say something kind of and I said well no Grania I said like um like I'm happy to help and she's like great great you can you can take this on now I had great dangerous help. words I'm happy yeah. to help <laughs> I did have great help with others and yeah. actually my my husband became like 
you know, co-coordinator right. um, and we were out with clipboards, but it was such an amazing thing to be part of. It mm. started off really small. I remember like we really struggled to have um, to get volunteers in our area. And I remember calling in like because other areas like had so many volunteers yeah. that they had finished canvassing everywhere um, well before we had. So like they were kind of drafted in to help us and I remember one night just turning up and there were about a hundred people there and I'm mm. like wasn't expecting this it was amazing yeah. and you know we'd we'd canvassed you know much more than we could do in any other night but like there were some standout moments from that in terms of the canvas and I remember going up to Finglas one evening and uh, meeting these three wee girls and one of them said <laughs> shouted over to us and she said what are you here for is it the water charges or the marriage thing <laughs> And we said, it's not the water charges, it's it's the marriage, the marriage equality. Thing. And then one of the wee girls said, oh, you know, and it was kind of a microcosm of the discussions that were happening mm. in people's houses. They were like, oh, no, my um, my mommy says that, uh, you know, that two, two men shouldn't marry because that makes them lesbians, <laughs> which was kind of funny, but not at the same time. We were like, oh right, God. okay. And then this she other little girl, she was only about seven, and she oh. turned around and she goes... I think you should be able to marry whoever you want if you love them. And like we were oh, all like holding back the tears. Captures and I'm like, so here, much. do you want a sticker? And then the other wee girls were like, can we have stickers too? And That's I'm how like, you bring people okay, on board. <laughs> stickers. But then the other standout moment was we were up in Ballymun and we were up in the courts up there. Mm. And we were all walking around and there was this group of young lads and they were kind of slagging and, you know, shouting things over and we were like you know what's what's going on here and we were you know kind of having the banter with them but then they said one of them said oh what are you here for and uh, we said oh the marriage equality referendum or the yes equality mm -hmm. and they were like okay convince us and I said well before I even start do you have a vote because mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we're you know and we were laughing about it and they said yeah and one of the fellows said yeah yeah no I do and um he made us give our pitch and we talked right. about it and uh, talked about equality and he turned around and he said, well, as a young traveller man, I, I'd be hard pressed not to support other people when it comes to equality. Mm. And again, it was like, you wow. know, everyone was just like, we weren't expecting that. So, yeah. you know, it really brought communities together. And like where you saw in the children's referendum, that constituency actually voting mm. um the vote came back and I think they actually might have voted against the children's referendum or it was very low mm -hmm. turnout and vote um, for yes. Like we were in the top 10 right. constituencies in the country wow. when it came back. So that yeah. was a really proud That's moment. We were really all the fantastic. RDS and I mean, the tears of joy were yeah. flowing. So it, it was great. And just to see the impact that that has on people I know and love as well is really important. Such an exciting time. I watched it just from here on TV and was following it um, through the news. But you could just sense this moment of change that was long overdue and really necessary. But as you said, it captured so much, much mm -hmm. more like these conversations that you just shared there. You can imagine what was going on between, you know, the yeah. older people and the younger people within their households. Oh, we could generation keep the to gay generation. Burn, yeah. Uh, flyers. They were the ones everyone wanted. The so, gay burn flyers. Oh, we, we asked, we specifically requested them then because for the older people that we were going to, they were like, Gay Burns voting yes. Yep. Or oh. Mary McAleese is voting yes. <laughs> yes, they are. Okay, maybe. And you could just see them reconsider. No, that wasn't to say that we didn't come across some of people course. who were very opposed yeah. and quite aggressive about it. But, you know, it was a real learning experience. Mm. And I was obviously a tiny part of that. But 
it was I think everyone just felt part of this bigger movement and yeah. you know we saw that with repeal then as well yeah. um you know and now that we're starting to see regressions in other parts of the world mm. you know I think we have to hold on hold to that. on to that I mean Ireland really did come across and that was shared globally that mm-hmm. outcome you know yeah. it's really putting it um at the fore of um progression in in rights um and as you say hopefully we don't regress in in other areas and pull ourselves up when it comes mm-hmm. to other issues as well um like direct provision and such but anyway um, that's a very very proud moment for you yeah. and it's fantastic that you were able to be involved in that alongside your work because that was all <laughs> voluntary so yeah. <laughs> um, so just on that um, I mean this question has probably been answered somewhat but activism is essentially a core part of your work in general so mm-hmm. you don't just volunteer as an activist it's part of your work how important this is a silly question I'm just thinking after just discussing no, everything with you no but silly how important is activism I guess in making change I mean is it important to have allies partnerships or you know can we just use the law in isolation how do we no. make change happen it's essential like the law is a starting point mm-hmm. um, and you can use it really effectively but actually to implement the decisions that are made then mm-hmm. you need the activism you need the campaigns to keep going so I'll give you another great example when I started in FLAC and I end up I'm talking about FLAC a lot now but um, I suppose it was quite formative for me yes. but um, I was only there I think less than a month when the Lydia Foy judgment was handed down and I was oh. in the the court for that and you know again it really like I, I wasn't involved directly mm-hmm. at that point so I'm not going to take any credit for that that was all Michael, Michael Farrell's Farrell. doing yeah. um, and the others that went before him uh, in FLAC who took Lydia on in the first place but I suppose um, the first declaration of incompatibility with the, the European Convention on Human Rights was handed down so that was 2007 we didn't see a Gender Recognition Act until 2015 mm. the years that it took for Lydia to get her birth certificate even after she had been through all of that. Like, I think that is a real kind of example of where you just have to keep plugging away. You have to keep making sure that, okay, you have a legal decision, but what does that mean in practice? Mm -hmm. That that changed nothing, really, Mm -hmm. for for her until you started getting... um, the legislators to take it on board to draft law to kind of consult with people um, and do that piece and really kind of uh, put the changes in place sure. you know yeah so gosh it is um, it's just when you think about like that because like, we all like I'm sure not everybody knows about the Liddy mm-hmm. Foy case but you take it for granted that, yeah. that that's it once you know um, mm-hmm. the court case has been heard but um, in terms of listeners then who and I'm sure there are many I, I like the way at the start you said that you you kind of weren't you know you were you, you were sure that you weren't going to practice at yeah. one point um, because often we had if people are young people who come in through they're like mm, I'm not really quite sure so that's mm-hmm. a really poignant kind of um, place to start but where what kind of words of wisdom if any do you have for our listeners who might be interested in following your footsteps after maybe having done a law degree or contemplating doing one I think really um, what I've learned throughout my career is like grasp the opportunities that you come across because sometimes they're not exactly what you plan to do or you thought mm-hmm. you might want to do but they lead you down a path and they might take you somewhere else. So, you know, I always thought I might end up in kind of the international human rights sphere. Mm. Um, I still get to do some work in that, you know, mm-hmm. but from an Irish context. Um, but like if I'd kind of shut down some of those opportunities that came along and, yeah. and waited 
for the one that I really thought mm-hmm. I wanted, then, you know, where would I have ended up? Like, I could have ended up in a completely different sector. But um, Company I, law. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone would have employed me in company law. But, um, you know, I really think that you have to do that and, and roll with the punches because mm-hmm. it isn't all easy. It, like, you do get rejection. Everyone yeah. gets that. And, I, like, when I'm giving career talks or anything like that, I'm always very... Um, you know, quick to say that, like, you know, I've gone for jobs that I really wanted Mm. and didn't get. Um, And then, you know, sometimes you think you're settling for something, but actually you're not, you know, because if you applied for it in the first place, sometimes it is because it's something you did actually Mm -hmm. really want. Um, But I think just grasp the opportunities, be open-minded, don't, uh, don't, you know, put in place your, your plan and, say that you can't deviate from that because you always can and it'll lead you somewhere great hopefully so to be open-minded and I think the particular sector that you work in it's a good there's a good family there isn't there and once you get to know people you you feel very much supported and different organizations link in with others so it's such a small community and I have to say even before I started with um, IPRT I kind of knew the team already or I'd been involved with them or come across them and you know I'm working with I mentioned Molly earlier but obviously we have another two members of staff at the moment um, Pamela Drumgul who is our communications officer and for a comms person she knows more than anyone around um, mm-hmm. some of these issues like the policy issues like she's amazing and then Sarah Jane McCreary who would have worked um, kind of in addiction services before so brings a whole other lens yeah. to it but she's our senior policy and research officer and she's responsible for our flagship publication yeah. the progress in the penal reform Mm. system so you know we're a really small team but I'd say we're a small but mighty team small but mighty powerful people there well I am so happy to have you here today and that you were able to share your fantastic journey with us thank you so much for coming in thanks Sarah and thanks for having me and we will look forward to following the work of the IPRT because I'm sure Mm. you've a lot on and lots of interesting um, projects coming up we will do and People should check out the website, sign up to the newsletter. If there are yep. solicitors who are interested um, out there, please do get in contact because we're always um, trying to ensure that we're reaching as wide an audience as possible. Fantastic. Well, thank you. See you soon. Thanks. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.